Welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV and video games. I'm Andrew Poxon, and in each episode we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. In episode 20, we conclude our analysis of one of the greatest film franchises in the history of cinema with part three of James Bond. Having sailed through the Connery era in part one and explored the unique musical places Bond took us in part two, we finish our series of three with a look down the gun barrel of the music of David Arnold and Thomas Newman with films of Brosnan and, of course, Daniel Craig as Bond. And joining me in, still in his full tuxedo, I'm starting to ask, you know, what his dry cleaner is doing. Um, It's composer, arranger, orchestrator, conductor, and a misogynistic relic from the Cold War era. It's Nicholas Buck. How are you doing, Nick? Summed me up in one sentence there, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good. I'm very excited about the most, uh, well, I guess, yeah, the modern era of Bond. Um, To me, David Arnold is the perfect John Barry replacement and I really adore the music that he did for all the Bond films and can't wait to get stuck into these latest and greatest scores. Absolutely. And joining me as always is our resident Q. Apart from that, he's a writer, critic, composer, university lecturer, Nick, whose students tell me, I spoke to them the other day, they are regularly shaken by his lectures, but interestingly, rarely stirred. (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it, Nick? Um, Could you please welcome... Dr. Dan Golding, how are you doing, Dan? That's amazing. I, I was actually going to make the same joke. <laughs> that, that's just... I, I, joke. I've, it I've was had a quote, my, my punchline ruined for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely fantastic. I couldn't agree with Nick Moore. David Arnold is the perfect, perfect composer to really extend the Barry sound and update it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, really from, from this sort of moment onwards... I feel that it's a return to classic Bond. Um, And in a weird way, I guess, the Bond that I imagine when I think of the 60s Mm. and 70s, Mm. even though we've just discovered that it's not Mm. really like that. Mm. Uh, So, yeah, he certainly finds something in the the DNA of the Bond, uh, you know, sound that sort of manages to recapture that, that really classic feel. But, of course, before we get into part three... I want to remind our listeners to like and subscribe, do that whole thing. If there is a Bond uh, fan that you have as a friend or in the household here and they haven't checked out part one and two, and of course part three that you're currently listening to, then I would encourage you to, uh, you know, share that with them, get everyone involved. We're finding that there's just so many people who are, um, you know, sort of enjoying different elements and different movies and TV shows that we're getting into. And of course, people are sharing them around, which we really appreciate, um, I guess you you pod it forward, I guess is the term. But without any further ado, Dan, let's just get straight back into it Mm. and um, look at the next film in the franchise. Yeah, so, I mean, we've really had that re-establishment, re-articulation, renewal, I suppose you could say, for the Bond franchise that it it really went through, the the big shifts in the 1990s uh, with, you know, Pierce Brosnan turning up and, you know, proving that Bond had a future post-Cold War with Goldeneye. And then we get really a continuation with that, but really a very different musical soundscape 
uh, with Tomorrow Never Dies, where we get our first David Arnold score. And, and how did he get the gig? Well, Dan. Uh, I mean, you know, he was previously, you know, an existing film composer. Before this, I think he'd done Independence Day, uh, which is a great soundtrack. Really, you know, this amazing... And, and Stargate. And Stargate, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, I, I don't know if we'll ever get to it because we've got such a backlog, but Independence Day is just such a fantastic piece of, you know, the, the main theme is brilliant. It's, anyway, but uh, he, he did a tribute album called Shaken and Stirred, which was essentially he got a whole bunch of different musicians in, his favourite musicians to come and sing the Bond songs to his own arrangements and really, you know, sort of revived a Barry sound but updated it, made it contemporary, added a little bit of electronics in there but sort of tastefully generally. Um, And, I mean, just, you know, to give you a preview, here's his version of Diamonds Are Forever which is sung by David McCalmont. So, I mean, you can really hear he's updating the Barry sound. And I, I think the story is he sent it to Barry, the the finished product. He did, as well as actually probably more importantly, the Bond producers. Yeah. And I think that really put, basically in their minds, they knew he was he was interested in the, in the job. Yeah. And I think probably just sent it to Barry just to say, look, hey, mate, I love you. Yeah. What do you think? You know, yeah. Anything would be great. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think Barry was quite complimentary. Mm. Um, and obviously the producers thought, that he was the right man for the job and, yeah. and, and he got it. There's a great interview with David Arnold talking about this score where he basically said that he threw like the kitchen sink at it yep. you know, to the point that if he got hit by a bus yeah. after <laughs> the film, like nothing would be left unsaid. Yeah. And look, you, know, you could probably say that most of the Bond composers would have liked to have thought that mm. they had done that. But I think in the case of Tomorrow Never Dies, Arnold throws everything at it. Yeah. You know, there is the contemporary stuff. There's the classic stuff. People don't know that the film was actually scored in three separate chunks. So you know, he'd write a whole bit of music, record it, then he'd wait a month or two until they'd finished filming the next bit. Gosh. Um, and wow. actually in chronological order. So and the score kind of has these little shifts from quite mm. you know orchestral stuff into a bit of electronics and and mm. drum machine stuff into some exotic stuff later on. Um, but what I thought was really interesting with Arnold um, and something we haven't talked about yet is that to me what always makes me excited at the start of a Bond film is kind of what makes me excited at the start of a Star Wars film, mm. which is where you get this sort of you get the studio logo, then that bit of silence. And you just wait for that, wah-bum, boom, wah-bum, you know, the sort of, <laughs> that kind of classic fanfare. And interestingly, over the years, there's only been about three films that haven't done that. Mm. Um, Dr. No didn't have a fanfare. It just mm. sort of had sort of nothing over the gun barrel. And there's some electronics. There's a little bit of electronics, mm. yeah. And then from Rush With Love all the way through The Man With The Golden Gun, we get the same fanfare. Uh, the Spy Love Me didn't have it. We just mm. sort of, it just opens with that kind of, You know, we don't even get the Bond theme there. And then the next one, basically, to not have the fanfare was Arnold's first entry, mm. which I thought was really interesting. Mm. And so what you get is just this sort of, um, it's like he's sort of teasing us. So we just get the riff mm-hmm. and we kind of get that little tag bit. Mm-hmm. 
which yeah, which to me is sort of is an interesting way of, of starting. Mm. It sort of it's slightly subtler way, mm. um, and it, yeah, it draws us in a bit more. And what I thought was a really great touch um, in the very first cue in the film is Arnold quotes a bit of From Rush With Love, uh, which he'd actually done on his Shaken and Stirred album. If you listen mm. to the track on Her Majesty's Secret Service, he opens with this, um, I think we talked about it at From Rush With Love, that that kind of slightly dorky um, orchestral stab there. Um, uh, Arnold quotes it here, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of transition it into From Rush With Love so we can kind of hear it. So, you know, already in the first few minutes of the film, there's quite a homage there going yeah. on musically. Which, yeah. uh, when I saw it, I'm like, I just had a smile on my face. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, finally. Yeah. You know, <laughs> exactly. Sorry, Eric, Sarah. I like some of what you did, but this is, this is how Bond should sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and uh, I mean, it, it's yeah. like, it's, it's such an interesting balance because it's a kind of musical nostalgia, which is such a hard thing to do because you've got to remind people of the past while also kind of making it better than the past because everybody remembers it as a little bit better than it was. Like if you just got that from Russia with love track and put it straight in the film, people would be like, well, this is a bit weird, yeah. you know? So you've got to, you've got to update it and make, make it sound like what people think they remember. Yeah. And you know, David Arnold has done such a fantastic job there. It, it works really well in the context of a modern action film. I mean, that's what I was really saying at the start is mm. that, you know, when, with my nostalgia goggles on, I think of Bond sounding like this always. Yeah. Throughout all of the Bonds. Yep. And uh, I, I wonder whether... Do you think that David Arnold is potentially the first genuine fan mm. of James Bond to compose for Bond? Genuine fan. Not just someone who respects the franchise, mm. maybe like John Barry's stuff, you know, a, a working composer, hired who's, who's mm. competent. Someone who quite obviously just loved it, did his own project, mm. you know, absolute fanboy... And then has got the gig, mm. and you can just feel that that he gets it. Mm. Yep. You know what I mean? Like I, it's it's that classic thing of um, you know you. I, I think of JJ this way in a weird mm. way. Like mm. you know, not to always bring everything back to mm. Star Wars, but it's me. So um, <laughs> you know, he in the same way that you've got to wonder sometimes whether George Lucas understood always yep. what made Star Wars so great. Mm. And you know, there are so many artists that are like this, by mm. the way. It's not just George Lucas. It's mm. people who don't quite understand what people are grasping onto. They know mm. what they're grasping onto. Mm. And then JJ comes in and just boils down, you know, this is what the fans loved about mm. your movies. And, and we have episode seven, which is the ultimate sort of fan, mm. you know, sort of movie. Well, this is the same sort of vibe, right? It's, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so in, in cinema studies, there's this great term that was that was coined a, a couple of years ago um, called the, the fanboy auto. 
yeah, which right. is really, I mean, J.J. Abrams is such a great example of that, where mm. he's an auteur in the sense that he's a great filmmaker mm. and he really knows the craft of filmmaking, but he's also able to speak that language of the fan. Yes. And to be able to turn up to Comic-Con and be, you know, sort of engaged with, you know, this is what this movie means to the fans and I know because I'm a fan, I yeah. get it. So, I yeah, can yeah, speak yeah. to you, but I can also speak to the average film-going audience. And, you know, someone like J.J. Abrams would do that. Somebody like uh, Joss Whedon... Um, even to an extent, Christopher Nolan with the Batman franchise, mm. that, that sort of mix. And I think with, with David Arnold, you've got a composer who essentially fulfills that same role, which is exactly what you're saying, yeah. which is that he's a really talented musician, but he's also kind of a fan. Yeah, totally. And so he straddles those two worlds mm. effortlessly. And apart from George Martin, he's the first English composer. Mm. Since Barry to, to return to yeah, the franchise. Yeah, right. You know. Interesting. Um, and look, I think part of what makes his score so great is the thematic tie-in between Arnold's underscore and the song that he wrote for the film. And yes. one of the great things that's been about Bond has been including the title song in thematic underscore. And really, the last time we had it before this film was in The Living Daylights because mm. License to Kill and Goldeneye, um, and their mm. songs were written by other artists and there was no integration into the underscore Gold- at all. We didn't mention this, but Goldeneye was written by uh, U2, well, by Bono and the Edge, yeah. and then sung by Tina Turner. So yeah. it's such a 1990s product, but mm. yeah. Yeah. And many people don't know that the main song for Tomorrow Never Dies was mm. sung and written by Sheryl Crow. I mean, he was hugely popular at the time and, you know, really follows that producer mold that we have today of grabbing artists whether they fit Bond or not mm. you know often grabbing artists that that are super popular but the song he wrote for really I guess became the end titles and features the word Tomorrow Never Dies in it even though the song is called Surrender um, is, a, is a ripper and to me is better than the main title song by, I, by a long margin I look I, I will go out on a limb and I'm not sure we're there yet but it's got to be up there for the best Bond song yeah Whoa. It has every element. And yep. what is so great about it is that Arnold uses it in the underscore um, in, mm. in different ways. So, look, let's hear a bit of the opening of Surrender and hear it Which how it kind of. Sung by Katie Lang. Sung by say. Katie Lang. And just hear how it kind of goes into some of the underscore cues that, that I've sort of mixed here together. So what you've got there already is three kind of different styles. You've got that kind of big, you know, brassy Bond, kind of almost like Goldfinger-esque rock rock kind of sound. Growling trumpets. Yeah. Yeah. You've got it in a more orchestral setting and then you've got the real contemporary edge. Mm. Um, And Arnold partnered with Propeller Heads. Remember those guys? Yeah. Um, Also in The Matrix. That's the the song during the iconic foyer. Uh, slow motion gunfight. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 The, oh, okay. the bass. Yeah, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. That's Prehelids. Prehelids, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, p- particularly for that that great car chase in the mm. um, in in the car park there, and that kind of daggy big BMW saloon yeah. that he's got there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's in a queue called Backseat Driver. But you can already hear this kind of great. 
really forming part of that that fabric of the score and, and it's quite quite iconic but there's also like a, a nice little melody that he wrote for surrender which also makes its way into into some of these tracks again so here we'll hear a bit of katie lang singing and again this um i guess the we'll call it the verse of this particular song featuring mm. in the underscore as well Your life is a story I've already written The news is that I am in control Yeah, so thematically, there's some decent substance in mm. there, and it's quite strong. And look, you know, to me, that especially that last track really became for Arnold, I think, a bit of his signature yeah. kind of style of, of of adding that contemporary edge. And you know, he, he he sort of elaborated and kind of repeated it a bit throughout the next few films. I guess getting slightly more kind of techno-ish or dance-ish, for want of a better word. Um, but for to me, that that really sums up that David Arnold kind of. Pierce Brosnan era. I mean, mm. to the point that, it, you know, like we talked about the early Barry stuff being parodied by Austin Powers, mm. the David Arnold stuff to me was parodied by Edward Schirmer in, um, well, I won't tell the name of the film, but oh, I'll, I'll play a track from it. I know. The name's English. English. Johnny English. <laughs> they are such underrated films. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, there, there are so many Bondisms mm. even in, in that. I mean, obviously it's supposed to be, right? But yeah, um, yeah. But just that angular. Yeah. You know, like they're just grabbing the little those kind little chromatic leaps and, yeah. um, and, and little chromatic bits. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, just, it's just endlessly surprising how much uh, mileage. You can yeah. get out of the idea the of an stuff. angular, yeah. angular trumpet melody, mm. chromaticism, mm. Um, big leaps, you know, that fall. You know, it's just it, continuously through these three parts. I just feel like I'm, I'm discovering the essence of yeah. Bond, and it's like it's not <laughs> as big as I thought it was. Yeah, it yeah, really yeah. is just a couple of little elements, and you mm. throw that on the end of or in the middle of anything, and you've got you've got spy music. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. And look, you know, apart from the the action stuff, I think what David Arnold does equally as well is the that sort of romance yeah, and that really I lush agree. Barry stuff. Um, he, he's a track called Kowloon Bay when they when they end up in Hong Kong, and um, it's beautiful because you really get you know you get the the location kind of establishing shot. It kind of gets a bit intimate. We hear that that kind of verse from Surrender, the song you know this time done you know on sort of acoustic guitar, but it's quite it still feels like it has an Asian sort of influence in it. And um, he's really nailing the romanticism, the exoticism, sort of all in, all in one cue. 
quite remarkable how sort of tasteful that is compared to how it could have been really dated. Like, because there's fretless bass in there and acoustic guitar and that combination immediately can, can go very, 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 you know, dated yeah. very quickly. And I mean, you know, that sort of writing, you know, brings to mind the other, you know, big hits of that era, you know, the Zorro films. Titanic yeah. is also 1997. Yep. Um, the sort of real integration of, of the pop hit. I mean, there's a couple of Batman movies that the worst of the of that that quadrilogy of that era, <laughs> the Batman Forever and um, uh, Batman and Robin yeah. with that sort of integration of pop tunes with soundtrack and and so that could be the moment where the film sort of veers into a bit of yeah. or, or sort of late, you know mid to late 90s uh time and place but it sort of actually that still for fretless bass and acoustic guitar that's pretty you know timeless do you know why i think it feels like that because I, I felt the same thing right mm. like i heard the beginning of it i'm like oh here we mm. go mm. and then it takes a right hand turn and it started up again that track i'll just tell you where i think it's where it suddenly goes no no we're not getting into cornball mm. territory mm. okay so you know here i'm i'm going oh here we go yeah mm. heard this before Typical Barry-esque flute there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now we're in the location and it's just, oh yeah. So once again, this very, yeah. eh, okay, cool. Mm. Mm. There. It's that change. The harmony there. The hum- oh, yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. True. Now it's more serious. Like before that, it's it could go into cornball love territory. Yeah. Mm. And then it, it's because it's all in this nice little yeah. key. And then it takes that very unexpected, for that genre, mm. very unexpected harmonic turn. Yeah. And then brings it back in that all of a sudden makes it a little more serious. Mm. And you're like, oh, no, no, this is like really quite lovely. Mm. Um, mm. That's also a very Barry progression. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's that yeah. mix of minor, major. Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just a little but, bit of harmonic sophistication. But yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like a pop song. Yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, I know there are, you know, pop songs that do use interesting harmonic progressions, sure. but I, I think, like you said, that sort of all of a sudden pulls it into a more movie realm and a, mm. yeah. Know, so, yeah, it's, it's cool. Interesting. Mm. So, look, let's move on to The World Is Not Enough. Yeah. Barry, um, uh, Barry gosh, there he is. <laughs> he's actually it. become uh, his, <laughs> his idol. Uh, Arnold's second score uh, for, for Bond. Which is, I mean, it's another great score. I, like the film is, I think, um, considered by Bond aficionados to be middle mid mid range. I'd say, yeah. uh, but I, I don't mind it particularly. Um, the, d- perhaps Denise Richards does not give the best performance. No, nope. uh, but <laughs> despite only coming once a year. Well, oh my god, that is that is one of the worst. It, so her name is Christmas Jones, and that's yep. how the film ends with yep. that joke. And it's or, or it's up there with the worst. I, I remember seeing it in the cinema, and yep. someone was just like. What? <laughs> like you can't say that. Yeah. You know, they're just like horrified at the yeah. innuendo. There. I I remember very specifically. Yeah, same deal. Just going, going. I mean, yeah. ah, 
yeah. it's a true statement. You know, Christmas does only come around once a year. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but again, like single entendre man really is is what, what we've got here. But this is the even the reason why it's more extreme is mm. not because of the joke. Mm. Fine, you know, sure. okay, cool, easy, low hanging fruit. Mm. It's the fact that throughout the entire film, mm. I'm asking myself, why is she called Christmas? <laughs> like it's dumb, yeah. and and you're like, oh, okay, fine, she's called Christmas, and it's not that explained. It's just accepted, and mm. that's how it is. And then they they drop that zinger at the end, yeah. and you're like, oh, yeah. that's why she's called <laughs> Christmas. It's like they decided to just insert her, I guess, name and person, just so they could make that joke. Yeah, yeah. It was a reverse engineered it's a, joke. A two hour long uh, setup for a punchline. Yeah, yeah, yeah and that's much. what made me angry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So maybe at the end of the podcast, we should, as well as having our favourite Bond yeah. and Bond film, have worst name. Yeah, I'm thinking uh, of a few already. Yeah, I, I know a few. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, there's there's the, the the insertion of a bit more electronica into this score as well. Yeah, yeah, there is some sort of, especially in some of that that great opening uh, yeah. boat chase. Yeah, um, with the, the ending on the Millennium Dome, which again is sort of time and place. Yeah, isn't mm. it? 1999. Mm. Um, yeah, we won't. I don't want to play that track, but we've had to listen to some of Arnold's. I guess you know exotic establishing music but to me he takes it to the next level in this film and I mean composers have done this before in Bond but I think Arnold really is the master at it where he kind of can mix an exotic location with that kind of Bond riff as well as mixing in the actual main song from Mm. the film and here you know this was his Goldfinger he got the chance to write the main title song for this Mm. Um, I mean it was utter garbage sorry Mm. it was sung by garbage (laughs) that was a joke Um, terrible and uh, (laughs) sorry (laughs) we just rate each other's singers from here on so this is this is when he uh, goes to Azerbaijan Mm. very exotic location and mm. um, a bit of a female warbling over the top which adds that level of exoticness And the, the, the classic Bond progression just lends itself so well to that um, Arabian harmonic minor sort of, Doesn't you it? know, because of the chromaticism in that and the chromaticism in the, the Bond chords, mm. it's, yeah, it's great. Andrew, I've never heard you do so much singing on a podcast. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's, um, it's my audition. out there, I love it. It's I'm, my audition tape. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really digging it. It's, <laughs> um, it's a problem if they don't love it uh, because there is a lot of it. <laughs> you know what? I got I got my taste for it in Harry Potter. Uh, and uh, right. I said Hogwarts oh, theme the song. Hoggy, you, yeah. Hoggy Hogwarts. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> now, guys, look. Um, Arnold, I think, has fantastic action music. But tell yeah. me if you've heard a more screaming, intense action little few seconds here. I mean, mm. Barry never wrote anything like this. This this mm. is pretty pretty intense and, and pretty muscular. This is for the um the sort of submarine sequence later in the film.
It's great. It's great. I mean, I think that that is absolutely up there with the best action cues uh, in in all of the Bond franchise. Mm. It's just such a good cue, and it keeps building and keeps. Yeah. Building. And even when it settles into like a, I guess we could say Barry esque pattern, ba da ba da ba da ba da ba. There's a really sense of urgency which you don't yeah. get in the earlier films mm. here. It's yeah. Really, and even yeah. just that ostinato, you know, the dun 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 Yeah, I can't, can't cut the rhythm quite right, but you know what I mean. Just, you know, it's really intense. Mm. It's also really interesting in terms of film music history mm. that you're hearing all these digital elements being put in, but it's not necessarily part of the orchestra. Like, the orchestra is doing its own thing, and in fact, the orchestral portion of that cue could survive very happily by itself without the electronics. Mm. So the electronics are adding texture, they're adding, I don't know, I don't know a feel, but it's not integral mm. to it. Whereas, you know, you move forward to the Zimmer and so on, and without the electronics, it is not anything, mm. you know. Um, and I just think it's interesting that you see that they're experimenting with that as an idea, so that it's always orchestra first, yeah, sure. Orchestra, get that right. And then you're putting in flavour mm, yeah. you know, of electronic over the top. Yeah. And, you know, interesting that from here, from 99, I mean, that's when you're seeing massive shifts in, mm. in film music. And it's mm. like this is sort of, you know, flirting with that idea as well at the same mm. time. But there was one thing I wanted to, but, you know, I'm just trying to sort of boil down this Bond thing. Um, if you start that cue back up, uh, right at the start it happens, so we don't have to wait long, you actually get those little angular elements that come in and just feels Bond straight away. So, just there. It's the, um, it's the trumpets. The da da yeah, yeah, it's a. Bu- 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 yeah, you know, there's it's a definite element of the of the high trumpet leap. Yeah, 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 and yeah. it just continues its own melody, and and obviously it's not a direct um, link, but it's just that idea of the angular trumpet that then rises and falls. You know, mm. Um, mm. and it's like, I mean, it's Bond living on the edge. It's the trumpets living on the edge. It's like mm. go for the leap. Yeah, yeah, and then, yeah, just mm. just see what happens. Yeah. Come down. <laughs> so I think that's why it works. You know, yeah. like mm. it just feels like Bond without actually quoting any Bond. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I will say there is one. There is a single uh, Arnold action cue that I prefer to this, but we'll get to that later. Oh. Mm. Now, Arnold's pretty good at writing love themes and stuff, and this particular film has quite a tortured lead character played by Sophie Marceau mm. um, in the character of Electra. And um, her theme is, God, I mean, it has to be definitely one of the saddest. Um, I don't know if you've called it a love theme. I mean, mm. it's really it's her theme. I mean, they have mm. a romantic, uh, pretty tortured romantic uh, relationship in this film and Arnold's music is yeah it's pretty sad but it's beautiful at the same time
I definitely hear shades of um, those sort of scenes in the aftermath of the alien invasion in Independence Day yeah, when there's, sort of, you know, there's the ruins of just sort of debris and fire everywhere mm. and people are mm. searching for their loved ones. There's, that, mm. there's an Arnoldism in, mm. in, in, in his sort of romantic music there. It's so mm. melodic. Yeah. Mm. Beautifully melodic. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Mm. So, I mean, from here though, I mean, he sort of really takes us to as far as the, the Bond sound can be. You know, we've heard it go through funk and disco and whatever. Mm. This is as far as we can go in electronic land, I suppose, mm. yeah. uh, with, with his score to Die Another Day in 2002, which was another sort of turning point for Bond because in some ways you can see that Because it was shit. Yes, <laughs> ba- ba- basically, yeah, basically. But, I mean, look, you can see how they were trying to add an element of revision to the Bond mythos with him being captured at the start and tortured and yeah. sort of you, you can feel like there's a whole nother version of Die Another Day where it takes that point and goes somewhere interesting with it. And it actually what it does is it goes somewhere incredibly boring <laughs> with, yeah. with with a lot of CGI I, that's I remember, not Yeah, good. that whole sequence at first mm. I was angry, I was like James Bond doesn't get tortured. And I mm. sort of remembered in Casino Royale in the book he does. Yeah. And, and yeah, we yeah. see his, you know, mm. nuts get flogged later on in real life. Yes. But, but also um, we see in Die Another Day, I mean, it opens with a surfing sequence, uh, yeah. <laughs> which is sort of doesn't doesn't bode uh, very well. And, you know, later we get Bond surfing again, but uh, surfing a sort of a avalanche slash... Mm. Um, Tsunami of, of waves while he's just fallen off his invisible, literally his invisible car with a giant space laser chasing after him. And it's sort of at that point I was sort of like, you know, maybe maybe we've gone as far as we can go in this <laughs> yeah. direction. Um, and I mean, look, yeah, to me, Bond is like, you know, the action should never feel fake. It yeah. should feel like, you know, they've always prided themselves on getting amazing stuntmen. Mm. And look at all the, by all the Bond DVDs, all the, all the documentaries, there's so mm. many like, um, like really famous stuntmen who've worked mm. on film after film and they've always like pushed the envelope. And here they just resorted to bad CGI, yep. you know. And, and unfortunately, I think for the music, some of, some of the stuff, is like kind of like the music equivalent. They kind of tried to push that that dance electronica yeah. techno stuff into it, and look, to me sometimes it didn't quite work. Yeah, and I mean the, well. the the theme as well is quite electronic. It's um, "Die Another Day" by Madonna. Yeah, uh, which is look not my favorite of the themes, but I can see why it sort of matches the film to some to some extent. Yeah. Uh, but look, let's let's hear a track. This is when Bond goes to Iceland and. Uh, yeah, it's like drum machine overload. There's some amazing brass playing in here, mm. but the the drums are whew, they're they're intense. 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 <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, again, it's just taking Bond in uh, musically as far a direction as, as, as it can go. You know, whether that sort of elastic band breaks at any point uh, in this score, maybe maybe it does to a yeah. degree, but it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Mm. And, and there are some sort of more dance 
almost sort of tech, techno elements in some bits. Uh, this, this is a cue called Whiteout. just trying to think where that style is even coming from mm. in this i mean i'm thinking the matrix um mm. is what 2000 2001 something mm. like that yeah. um there is a matrix uh, 90, ism. oh it's 99 matrix. is it yeah, that yeah. early was it yeah. Yeah. um but yeah there's a matrix ism about that but mm. the rest of the score follows that same vibe it's like yeah. they've tried to just smear over yeah are we talking thing. like the songs that we use in the matrix as opposed to the actual the no, score was pretty orchestral. The Don Davis score is very orchestral. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah, but, yeah, but uh, the, the tracks that he used. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like there's a heavy house influence. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, it just that, seems it seems dated. I mean, yeah. maybe I'm forgetting 2000. It seems that, and a little lazy as well. Mm. I think it's sort of it's it, to me. You were saying before how the orchestral was sort of carrying it, and it doesn't necessarily need the, mm. the drum element here. I feel like it's just like that really same old Bond riff. Yeah, yeah. You know, so mm. chuck some screaming brass on, but but sort of the the drums are kind of trying to carry too much, in, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it sort of suffers for it. But mm. but look, we do get some nice um, return of the chorus. Uh, Gustav Graves, who I don't think is the best villain, but he builds this massive satellite called Icarus, and when it's unveiled, um, we actually get some pretty pretty intense choral chanting and a, and a bit of a, a build. And it's I guess it's it's Arnold's version of the space flight. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, it's, you know, musically, I think it's quite interesting. Uh, in the scene, it always feels a little bit overstated because the drama in, uh, by the end of the film is not there for me. Yeah, mm. it feels a little forced. Yeah, mm. like the, the music is compensating for the lack of drama, mm. essentially. Mm. Yeah. But it has a standalone cue. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Nice. quite and for I, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I hear shades of, um, uh, he scored a Stargate, all those mm. bits in Egypt with Ra. Mm. You know, there's, there's some really great choral kind of chanting there and that sort of, you know, mm. the menace of something up above, mm. uh, which is nice. But, um, and look, yeah. that was that was Pierce Brosnan's last. It was. Last Bond. It was. And and look, not really through any fault of his own, but he's just associated with this this moment where Bond sort of just went a bit too CG, a bit too fantasy, sci-fi, um, speculative futures sort of thing, too car, invisible car sort of style. And, you know, yeah. a couple of big things happened as well around this point in that Die Another Day was released in 2002. Another movie that was released in 2002 was The Bourne Identity. 
Ah. And so you get this real sort of competition for the the supremacy. Yep. <laughs> that was the second Born film, but yes. the supremacy for for the spy franchise. And Born is obviously polar opposite of yep. Lasers in Space, where you know it's very you know hyper realistic fighting style. Yep. Um, certainly with the sequels, you get you know the um, you know Paul Greengrass's uber shaky cam mm. approach um, where you really feel like you're in the action and everything's believable. You see, you know, Bourne taking down villains with, with, with pens and, yep. and, and, and books. I mean, don't you think Bourne, the Bourne series, really captures what audience wanted at that time? Yeah. Which is they sure. had endless goofball, mm. you know, action films and, and mm. certainly spy films and, and it includes Mission Impossible and mm. all that sort of stuff. Mm. And then... You know, Bourne comes along and says, "You know, this is this is for adults. Yeah. You know, you want you want serious spies who are doing serious things. Well, um, yeah. it's, it's it's that film. You well, know? Also, not not to you know read too much geopolitical influence into it, but it's surely there. Is that you know audiences are now living in a, in a post nine eleven world where yes. you know people can inflict major damage through just sort of." taking over a plane or, you know, mm. doing something in the moment that causes mass repercussions on a global scale. Um, and you see that in a film like the Bourne franchise. You don't need lasers in space. You don't need the latest amazing science fiction technology. You just need sort of a person with ill intent. Yes. And I think, you know, audiences saw that in the Bourne franchise and they didn't see that in the Bond franchise. Mm. And this was a kind of a crisis, yet another crisis for the franchise that needs I mean, to reinvent it's itself. It's the license to kill moment, right? Yeah, It's for sure. where they've explored another aspect yep. Yep. of Bond mm-hmm. and gone really far down the path mm. in that way and then gone, oh, that mm. didn't work. Now, where do we go from here? Yeah. Well, nowhere. You know, let's... Yeah. I mean, once again, this is the, you know, because I'm just so vivid memories of of watching these in the cinema that when they stopped this, Mm. I didn't necessarily assume I wouldn't see another one, but Mm. I certainly wasn't thinking there was going to be another one. Mm. It wasn't on the radar. And, you know, I felt as an audience member, it's like, oh, Mm. okay. Mm. They've run out of ideas, you know. Um, They've got to the ridiculous point. So, once again, I'm not thinking there's going to be another one. And And there was a a four-year gap. There was, yep. Before um, Casino Royale. Mm. And, you know, the other major film that's released that has an influence here is is, um, uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins movie from a year before Casino Royale in 2005. Mm. And that kind of illustrates not just a kind of reboot logic that works, because um, reboots weren't really a thing mm. until until Batman Begins, but a kind of what I guess what you describe as new sincerity is some, how some people have, have have described this. Sometimes it's used in literature in a different sense, but with films, it sort of means a re-embracing of what made a genre or a franchise great. Yep. So no longer parodying, no longer trying to push it in new directions, yep. but kind of going, this is what we think is the core appeal of this franchise distilled with a straight face. Yes. And so you see that with Batman Begins, and really you see that with Casino Royale. And let let us not forget that when Daniel Craig was announced, you know, the Daily Mail's running these James Blonde headlines, yep. and, and, and you know, they, they've got paparazzi photos of <laughs> him being announced um, 
on a on a on a boat on the Thames <laughs> wearing, a life, wearing a life jacket, and they're like, James Bond would never wear a life yeah. jacket. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, spoiler, he's an actor, and and probably doesn't want to die in a in a boating accident, right? And, and you know, so the 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 public mood was very much anticipating that this would be a continuation of Die Another Day, and that mm. this would be a disaster, yeah. and that you couldn't have somebody like Daniel Craig. Who, I didn't get it myself. Mm, mm. Like I I looked at him, and because I mean. Because of my age, mm. my bond, mm. even though I had watched the Dalton and the everything else, Connery, my bond was Pierce Brosnan. Sure. I could only mm. imagine Bond to be that very British, mm. and, you know, straight-laced guy. Daniel Craig mm. isn't... He's not as overtly handsome as people like him. No. Like Pierce Brosnan mm. is a very handsome man. Mm. Roger Moore, extremely handsome mm. man, yes. you know. Um, Dalton a little edgier, but yeah. Sean Connery very handsome. Mm. Daniel Craig, especially at that time with his that haircut and that suit, you know, yeah. kind of a bit dorky looking. Yeah. You know, I mean, but it's the power of like a great haircut and a mm. good Tom Ford suit. I mean, mm. when he when he got trimmed and um, they just sh- shot him in the film. I mean, what a transformation! Mm. Yeah, I mean, mm. I didn't get it. Mm. I mean, before I saw the film, mm. it changed yeah. when I saw the film. Yeah. Uh, in the lead yeah. up to it, it I was like, oh really? Okay, mm. you know, they're really rolling the dice on this one. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but you know, obviously that worked wonders, and many mm. people, I think, still probably point to Casino Royale. I mean, we should also point out that Casino Royale is the first book chronologically, yes, that was written by Ian Fleming. Took them this long and to it, get there, it, exactly. It had never been adapted except for that that sort of incredibly strange uh, David Niven, um, you know, uh, Orson Welles uh, version in the sixties, um, which is not associated with the Ian productions. Uh, and so, you know, this was kind of a reinvention, perhaps more broad-faced than, or bare-faced, I, I think is the word I was going for there, uh, than any of the other reinventions so far. And the music, uh, you know, it, we've still got David Arnold, so yeah. we've still got a lot of the, the sort of traits that made his previous scores great, but I think it's like the film, he's refined them. Yeah, mm. and and he's predominantly gone back to the core orchestra. Yeah, there's, there's a bit of electronics and, and stuff in here, but um, especially compared to Die Another Day, he's paired yeah. it back. And really interestingly, um, pretty much no appearance of the Bond theme. Mm. Um, the Bond harmony, yes, that sort of you know certainly features, but it's sort of the film where he has to earn it. He has yeah. to earn his theme and, yep. and Arnold has said that. So we, we don't get that actual melody until the very, very end of the film. Mm. And I think, to me, that creates a nice sense of anticipation in the score. I, I think this this is my favourite of the Arnold scores. Well, maybe with Tomorrow Never Dies. Mm. I think it's a much better film than mm-hmm. Tomorrow Never Dies. Mm. Um, and I think in the film, this score works amazingly yeah, I agree. Well, well. I mean, don't you think that this is, like you mentioned Batman Begins, mm. which just feels like the ultimate reboot because they don't mm. just trot out the origin story in the first fi- you know, five to 15 minutes. Mm. You know, Batman Begins is the origin story where he becomes Batman right at the end. Yeah. You know, and this is, even though it's not quite the same, it is It is a total reboot. Mm. It feels like in a weird way, and maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but it doesn't feel like James Bond necessarily existed before this film. Yeah. Like, mm. yes, you, you, he's obviously in the middle of a mission. He's obviously mm. had a job before that. Um, but they really do present it as this is not something that has existed before mm. and you start to sort of get elements that, and maybe Dan, you, you'll be talking about this, but mm. um, where it does start to continue the story from mm. movie to movie. Yes. It does feel like that, you know, he's living within a consistent world that isn't mm. just here's another episode of. Mm. Um, 
but everything about it just feels new. And then, mm. like you said, they not only discover Bond-isms as they go along, and supposedly, you as an audience, you're supposed to be discovering these, or maybe it's like an you know an Easter egg hunt. You're like, oh, there yeah. it is. You know, he's finally <laughs> he's got his stripes on this. Yeah. Um, you know, the theme does the same thing. He has yeah. to work hard to get that theme to come back. Um, mm. And I'm wondering whether that sort of mirrors the franchise. It's like yeah. it's actually working really hard to tell everybody Bond mm. is relevant now. Sure. Um, you know, the the sexism and everything mm. else that sort of mars a lot of the previous eras. You know, we're mm. we're moving forward now. We're not going to necessarily be putting that in your face. Absolutely, and it very consciously casts off a lot of the things. You know, there's that line, especially which I think is emblematic with the whole approach, when he's just lost all the money in the in the casino, and the bartender offers him a martini, uh, and and you know, I think their bartender says, "Would you want shaken or stirred?" And he goes, "Do I look like I give a damn?" Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> and yeah. and it's sort yeah. of that that very conscious like. I'm not interested in the trappings of the past reinvention of the character. And have you guys noticed that all the Daniel Craig films open cold? There's no gun barrel fanfare. Mm. It just opens up, you know, off a black screen to just ruin the scene. Mm. Um, no, I hadn't. I mean, that, look, sure, I probably noticed at the time, but um, um, th- that to me is mm. something that I really found striking. I thought it was only Casino mm. Royale, but it's actually mm. all the Daniel Craig films don't don't have any gun barrel. They actually, we, we, we they do. save it to the end. Yeah, actually. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, Except for Casino Royale, we get the gun barrel so before the credits. Exactly. There. Yeah, mm. it's really interesting. But mm. anyway, look, let's have a listen to. Um, there's a great chase, the parkour yes. sort of, uh, chase at the start. Mm. Um, a cue called African Rundown, and yeah, some really great. Um, organic kind of percussion. I mean, Arnold had heaps of percussionists going on this stuff and some, uh, of course, some really ballsy integration of of the main title theme that he wrote with um, the late Chris Cornell. Don't you love how like the the rhythmic? It still has that African percussion going, mm. but all of a sudden has this really kind of lazy swagger. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's going from to like wah wah wah. Yeah. Just yeah, like yeah. I'm here, guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, what is he drives like sort of big some yeah like some a, truck like or a, machine a crane or something. A bobcat. Or something. Yeah. 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 Just plows through it. Yeah. It, it's great. So. Again, I mean, yeah. It, you know, as I mentioned uh, previously, you know, uh, Martin Campbell, same director of Gold, Goldeneye. You know, sort of using that same chase as yeah. character development. Yeah. Sort of thing, which is which is really fantastic, and it's yeah. you know, uh, will I be right in saying it's the first? Well, no, maybe not the first, but um, it's not a car chase; it's a human chase. Yeah, you know, on like foot. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, are there any other big on foot chases that are actually choreographed, not just run a little bit? No, not really. I mean, there's a big plane sequence, but they're on. Yeah, hmm. there's yeah, they're on they're on cars and and sort of 
plain mm. tarmac machinery stuff. <laughs> I mean, even parkour was sort of the flavor of the moment. Oh, I sure, remember, yeah. you know, yeah. only finding out about parkour, probably because of the internet, mm. um, you know, months beforehand. Mm. And then all of a sudden seeing it on the big screen was like, mm. they really hit that sort of flavor of the moment of, yep. you know, look it's at very, this very relevant thing. To, yeah. to that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I want to play now, you know, I mentioned before that we never get the Bond theme here, but Arnold really, you know, uses what he has, which is this kind of Bond harmony. And in my mind, I was like, oh, thank God, we've gone back to a drum kit. We've sort of got rid of all this crazy dance electronic stuff. And um, there's a great cue where he goes, I think, to the Bahamas. Yeah. And um, we kind of get some different, you know, different sort of presentations of this Bond harmony, but all kind of done with acoustic rock and roll drum kit. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit of a preview of his Sherlock work, actually, David Arnold, because uh, he uses sort of that combination of orchestra and a bit more of a contemporary rock drum feel in, yeah. in that in that TV series. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's I, I think I, it's great, and I do like the fact that like that song is called "You Know My Name." Yeah, it's pretty much saying you know you don't need to play my theme. Yeah, you know yeah. who I am. Yeah, yeah. And here's here's a bit of that. But it's. He doesn't need to. Yeah. No. Like all of Bond is in there. Mm. You know, the the squawky trumpet, the guitar with the um Squawky Tremolo. <laughs> yeah, Tremolo. yeah, Tremolo on yeah. the guitar. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the the harmony. Mm. It's all there. Like it mm. you know And and actually, while we're on the subject of theme songs for this era, I kinda wanna make a point about what I I mean, there's kind of a trio of of theme songs for this era, for the Daniel Craig era, between Casino Royale, Quantum of Souls and Skyfall, in that they all essentially use variations of the Bond chord progression. And that is yeah. so if you just do the regular chromatic yeah. Now the other way you can get those those three notes to move is by going. I don't know what key you're in. But well, I mean, yeah. I mean, rather than just moving the the fifth of the of the scale mm. up, if you actually change the chord. change the bass note. Mm. Yeah, and it's a much more sort of majestic way of of doing mm. those chords. And so that's you know you know my name. Yeah, yeah. And it's also Quantum of Solace um, with the. Or the the, the, the yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not a fan of that song, but anyway. <laughs> and then yeah, let this guy. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So I mean, they're all they're following the same idea, which mm. is you know ways to build in the Bond chromatic progression into more pop melodic uh, yeah. harmony. Yeah, mm. yeah. Interesting. Now, would you say that this film has the deepest romantic relationship since yep. On Her Majesty's Secret Service? Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Without a doubt. 
Because to me, that is why this film, hmm. I think, is is so successful. It's yep. it, it doesn't take a cavalier approach to women. It, it actually yeah. builds a proper connection, and I think that yeah. it's just more interesting, really. Mm. And even just from the point of view of what ripples it sends through every mm. movie after it, mm-hmm. is he then continues to not get over that mm. for every single movie that has come since. Mm. Um, or at least there are elements of that scar there. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's really important. I mean, it, it does help to actually show that Bond is different mm. um, in mm. a more modern way. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, and then the other thing I, I think is so successful about this film is that it... That casino, that card part mm. it's exciting yeah and it's tense and they but they allow time yep yeah they just sit yep. within it's that it's quite a long game. kind of yeah no I mean half hour of mm. film footage yeah. that, that is what I think sets Casino Royale and On Her Majesty's Secret Service apart in mm. that they are the two Bond films still that allow with maybe the exception of Skyfall as well towards the end that allow the action to take place in a single location for an yep. extended period of time. You know, we're not cutting to a new locale every 20 minutes. He's yeah, not yeah. traveling around. He's not sort of moving around within a city. Mm. In Casino Royale, he's at the, the casino. Yeah. And in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, he's at the island... Oh, sorry, island. The Piz Gloria. Mountain, yeah, Piz Gloria Mountain mm. Retreat for extended periods of the film. Mm. And, I, you know, it allows the characters to develop. It allows the stakes to be yeah. actually... Grown. And it's a it's a genuine psychological battle, mm. and everything that makes Bond great. Yes, I, I mean yes, fine. He has the 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 action sequences and so on. But I never think of Bond as a physical character, mm. even though Daniel Craig brings the physicality mm. into mm. it. Um, but Bond as a character, he's 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 always getting there through gadgets, smarts. Um, uh, just cool, mm. you know. But they're mm. often aided by gadgets and other mm. things. Um, this is allows him to. There's nothing muscular about it. It's him mm. just being the smartest guy in the room, mm. so to speak. He's outwitting a guy who's also very smart. Mm. And it's a real battle of the minds. And mm. I, f- I just found it so fascinating. Like mm. it, yeah. it was. And yeah, it's not that stupid megalomaniac taking over the world. Yeah, rubbish. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they they get rid of all of that as an mm. idea from here on. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't, I just really love this film. I think it's mm. just really great. But yeah, the the romance. Yeah, the romance. Mm. Let's let's hear the music that we have. I mean, Vespa. Basically, the character gets her own theme, mm. and um, we'll also go into a track called "The City of Lovers." And that really is, I guess, um, to put it apart from Vesper's theme, is, is really is their romance mm. kind of theme, and it's, it's it's beautiful. And again, classic Barry, but also kind of classic Arnold at, at the same time. Mm.
lovely. Mm. It's gorgeous, isn't it? Mm. I really like Vespa's theme. Mm. I think it's it's just, you know, a great example of a musical idea that sums up the character. Yeah. It's it's beautiful, melancholic. There's it's something delicate and vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, but also something, you know, he, the way he develops it out, there's something hidden there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> yep. Well done, David. Yep. Good work. <laughs> 10 points. Um, Quantum of Solace. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I love this score. I think that this is, I mean, this is the final one that David Arnold did. Uh, and He'll be back. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. But I, I look, I think, you know, the movie, um, you know, there was... Too short. A bit, yeah, it is. It is short. Uh, it's quite brutal as well. There's not a lot of character development. There's a lot of uh, retribution, I suppose. Yeah. Following after Casino Royale because it really it almost takes doesn't up. feel like a standalone movie. It's just like yeah. a sort of a little coda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Well, yeah, yeah. And you know what? I mean, the thing I didn't like about this film, I just didn't care about the plot. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Something about polluting water. I mean, look, I'm, mm. I'm not. I'm not. For water pollution. Yeah. <laughs> don't get me uh, wrong. I don't know. You Nick. heard it you know? here first. I like, Nick I, Buck is again. Is, I drink tap water all the time. Yeah. But um, ah, oh, just like oh. Look, I think. The, bit. I, have you seen it recently? No. I think it's aged well. Okay. Because uh, look, the the plot is not good, and part of this is that so it was what's it was, aged well. It was it was it was written and and created during the writers' strike in Hollywood, and mm. so there are basically suggestions that Daniel Craig. And the director, Mark Forster, who's sort of an art house director, really, um, were like writing the script that Themselves. morning. Yeah. That <laughs> they, morning. They crossed the picket line. Well, I mean, because they're, they're not credited as writers. So, yeah, they right. didn't really, I mean, in, in, ter- in the way that Hollywood works with mm. unions and stuff like that, they were kind of allowed to work that way because it's sort of considered improvising. But, yeah, right. I mean, anyway. anyway um, <laughs> but look, that probably explains part of the, the plot. But, I mean, it, it does, you know, as you, as, as you were saying before, Andrew, this kind of changes the, the mode of seriality at work in, in Bond because mm. it follows, like, you know, minutes after the end of Casino Royale. Um, and really continues that plot line as kind of a, a part B, mm. um, which is very different. I mean, apart from in Diamonds Are Forever, actually, we get a, a pre-credit sequence where Sean Connery goes around looking very angry and sort of torturing people um, to find Blofeld after he's killed Tracy. So mm. there is a nod there, um, but it sort of dropped pretty quickly. I mean, I think in the modern era of Bond, Quantum of Solace is the strangest film mm. in terms of it feeling the least like Bond. I know it's got the stuff in there, but just because of the fact that it is this direct... Yeah, it feels really angry. Yeah, and then there's... It is a very angry You know, Bond doesn't... He just doesn't do in any other film. Does like anyone the stuff smile seems- in this film? Like the, the, the <laughs> love interest girl, she never smiles. No. I don't think Daniel Craig says any joke. No. I mean, look... I, I, yeah. The action Lighten sequences up, as well, <laughs> they're kind of like... I mean, it's interesting from a formal point of view because they're like they're sort of approximations of action sequences because there's so much information missing. It, it's really following, not just following the Bourne approach to action, but that real like abstract, not giving you all the visual information, all the spatial information about where you are within the scene, where the camera is. Um, 
that it really a lot of these sequences especially the opening sequence you watch that car chase it's like you know anything could be happening really and it's sort of an, it's like an abstraction of an action <laughs> mm. of an action sequence yeah. but i actually look i i have a bit more time for quantum of solace than yeah. most people because i just I, I think it reads a bit better today if you watch it and i actually thought the opera scene was really fantastic i think that's a great scene, uh, it's yeah. probably my favorite bit of the film um but re- regardless of the of the quality of the film i think the score is Great. It's great. Yeah, yeah, I think I think there's some really interesting stuff that Arnold's doing that he has actually hasn't done in previous films, like the opera sequence. I mean, yeah. we can we can probably hear. Yeah, a bit let's of hear about the opera sequence. And it's in some ways, it's I think you were talking about it before, mm. like it's a return to that sort of that watery woodwinds yeah. of, of Thunderball yeah. you know, from 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 many years ago. see the fifth Mission Impossible film where that, there was a, mm. again that opera sequence oh yeah did oh, it sort of yeah. remind you of you of this yeah, yeah. Mm. Not, mean, not musically but just, just mm. that sort of I watched stuff that, going down, down at an opera I watched yeah. that recently actually only a couple of weeks ago mm. and gee that's an entertaining sequence in Mission yeah. Impossible yeah. Yeah. like it's just really creative mm. um, I, yeah, yeah. It's Mission really Impossible cool. especially the last two films have been great yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. but the fact they both use Puccini as sort of the, yeah. the back end of some other intrigue yeah, going right. on mm. yep and uh, yeah, I mean, one, one's more sort of an out. They both have a sort of battle behind the mm. stage door somewhere. Mm-hmm. But, um, and there were, there were a few nods to uh, the spy loved me when he kind of the guy's yes. hanging off his tie. Well, e- exactly and stuff like that. And I think this is what makes Quantum of Solace kind of an interesting film, especially if you if you were to go back and spend a month like I did watching all of them in a row, you'll see that Quantum of Solace is the one that is it's the film school bond where the director has gone through and he's watched all the other films and he <laughs> he's making little knowing references and sort of yeah. reworking things and he's not overplaying it because he knows you you've seen it before yeah. like that that reference that you're talking about with holding on by the tie and letting him go off the side and there are quite a few others like the I mean I think the parachute sequence um, which maybe we'll talk about musically in a moment is a nod to the beginning of what is it Moonraker where he jumps out of the plane without a parachute yeah. and gets one off Jaws gets um, pushed yeah pu- pushed sorry not, not by choice <laughs> yeah. um, so all these like little nods it's yeah. yeah I mean I think it's quite interesting I look at uh, I agree it doesn't really hold together as its own film but in but, context but you like the action music I do I, I think hear. I think this scene this is this is what I was alluding to before when we were talking about the submarine sequence from the world's not enough great action cue I think the only one that's better is target terminator from quantum of solace which is when they're in the DC3 plane uh, being pursued by more modern fighter planes and a helicopter.
And I mean, like it, it just it just continues to get better. And yeah. like, there's you know, if you watch it um, with the film, I mean, it's not going to make any sense on a podcast. But there's a little clip on YouTube as well where someone's just basically pasted that over the top of the that action sequence, and you can with see no sound effects and exactly. Stuff, yeah. And so through watching that, you can see how you know the music plateaus at just the right moment. It just you know pulls it back while they're sort of looking around for the fighter planes, and then kicks it up a notch. And then finally, when we take the plane up into the stall, I don't know if we can we can hear that where it gets really into heavy chromaticism. And it's just sort of, you know, it's a masterclass for me in not just the notes that we hear and not just the mode or mood or, or tone of, of the piece, but just the tempo. If you, if you sort of think about how, you know, that track, if you, if you can go through and listen to the whole thing, there is quite a few little subtle tempo changes and a, and a few time signature changes as well. And it's just like each of those reflects just, you know, each little beat within that action. Exactly, exactly. Until finally, you know, they both fall out of the plane and it's just silence. And it's just, you know, down to the second with that moment. And it's just, I mean, I just think it's just such a great combination of a scene and the soundtrack. Well, what a way to go out. Good Mm. old David Arnold. Mm. (laughs) Because after this film, um, we keep Daniel Craig, but uh, new director, Sam Mendes, uh, who had collaborated many times with Thomas Newman, decided to bring on his his regular collaborator. And we get a new Bond composer yet again. Mm. And look, I mean, I think to film score fans, sort of a strange choice. I mean, people don't think of Thomas Newman's music with, first of all, action films, Mm. all kind of spy, you know, nothing that he's done previously really would seem to serve as a logical precursor to to his Bond stuff. But um, that's not to say, you know, he's still a very capable Mm. composer, one of the Mm. the top A-list composers out Mm. there. And um, I think he did a great job with with Skyfall. Mm. And don't you think that this is yet another weird resetting Mm. in its own own strange way? I mean, it's a continuation of Daniel Craig and, Mm. and, Mm. and the story, but... I just felt going to the cinema that they said, uh, Quantum of the Solace once again went a mm. little too far mm. down the idea of <laughs> let's continue the story. Mm. And you know what? There wasn't enough gadgets. There wasn't enough <laughs> Bond things. There yeah. wasn't enough whatever. Yeah. And the answer to that, the healing of the audience and the relationship mm. is oh, Skyfall, which in my mind is for the Daniel Craig era is the ultimate in let's trot out all of the great Bond in isms without <laughs> mm. the sexism and everything mm. else mm. and we'll just celebrate Bond mm. you know we've yep. done our gritty we've yep. done our you know angry Bond mm. now we're going to do our classic yeah mm. and of course this was the anniversary film as well ah there we go um, yeah. so 2012 all the way back to 1962 so you know uh, the 50 years and it's you know it's the first Bond film that's mostly set in England or at least, you know, Britain with mm. Scotland as well. Um, so, you know, there's there's some new elements, but it, the new elements are designed as a kind of homecoming in a sense. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I, you know, the music reflects this too. Yeah. And probably no better example than the, the music we get really for, for M. Yeah. Which, um, whether it's for M or for sort of, for MI6, mm. uh, I feel like it's sort of like a, an ode a sort of a mournful ode to, for MI6. Yeah. And this is a, a, a cue called Voluntary Retirement.
yeah, I really love those sort of M. I mean, dour is the yeah. word I would give. You know, sort of pa- patriotically stately, but in a in an old fashioned aware that your time is up. Sort of mm. yeah, yeah. That there's a sourness there. Mm. Well, maybe you hit the word on the you mm. know, dourness. Mm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there the, it's almost like a fragment of stately old style British. That has crumbled at this point. Yeah. So you've still got the intervals. If we talk musically, you've still got the, uh, the the perfect intervals in the harmony. You've still got brass, nice and clean. You know, it, there's not a lot of clashing, but it is. Its old brilliance is not there anymore. Yeah. It's mm. like the foundations are sort of there still, and and the you know what made it great is sort of there, but. There's its an, brilliance it, yeah. has 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 waned. Yeah. and there's point. enough yeah. kind of there's a couple of that middle chords a bit sort of slightly angular, slightly wrong. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 and all that kind of downwards movement followed by a bit of upwards. Yeah, yeah. it's um, yeah, it's really pushing, pulling there. Yeah, and I mean, you know, that it's quite interesting as well because you know, like <laughs> the the problem with the writer's strike and the delays there is that it meant that by the time you're three films in to the Daniel Craig era, and the plot is already about how he's kind of an old man. Which is which is which is kind of a little bit of a problem with casting, and it's you know one of the reasons why a lot of people are you know when they've been saying oh you should get Idris Elba, I, I agree he would be a fantastic Bond, but he's way too old because yeah. like by the second film you'd be like well this guy's like clearly Roger Moore's if you do a kill all yeah, over again <laughs> yeah yeah um, so I mean it's kind of it's kind of an ongoing issue for for Bond films actually mm. but with this film you also get the reinstatement of classic Bond elements you know you get the return eventually to the old MI six building you get money penny returning yep. you get q you get the quartermaster yeah, and you yeah. know to me nothing sums this up better is when q is introduced where they're in the like i think it's the british gallery and they're looking at that great turner painting the the, the of, ship of the ship, yeah. the ship oh. being towed out to to be retired mm. um and it's kind of you know that's such a british image being used being repurposed by this franchise to kind of sum up the central concern of this film which is is he too old is yeah. Bond once again this question that we've faced in Goldeneye in The Living Daylights in in potentially as far back as Live and Let Die or On Her Majesty's Secret Service is this character still relevant yeah, yeah. it's relevance rather than the age of the actor or the age mm. of the character even exactly it's, it's just pure relevance of and, and it really is summed up in this it's relevance of the entire agency mm. it's not just Bond we're mm. retiring you. It's like the whole concept of what they're trying to achieve is thrown into question. Mm. Yeah. And look, Newman, like all the composers, they kind of get there. There's certain moments in these films that really give a composer um, a wider canvas, shall we mm. say, to to put their stamp on on the franchise. Uh, we have talked, you know, a lot of the cues we've played have either been action cues um, or sort of location style mm. cues. And I think that great sequence where. I think he goes to Macau, Macau and he's sort of yeah. arriving on this, standing up on his boat. Yeah. As if that would Bond, ever Bond doesn't sit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's um, Daniel. Bond sits for no boat. You know what it is? It's Daniel Craig, <laughs> Daniel Craig making good on his poor entrance when he was right. announced yeah, in the yeah, life the jacket, jacket and, yeah. and the floppy hair. He's like, you know what? I'm in a tux. I'm in a yeah. stand. You yeah. watch. I don't need a life jacket. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, Newman provides a, a pretty great, great lush and mm. slightly exotic oh, cue, cue. Um, called Komodo Dragon. Mm-hmm. 
two things. Mm. Do you guys reckon it sounds like Batman just arrived at the end? Oh. <laughs> a little bit? Yeah. It's got, got, got a bit of power there, doesn't it? Yeah. Gothic. And actually, something I just noticed, and I'm not sure why I've never noticed it before, is that that's probably the only cue in the film where he actually incorporates that Skyfall tune. The Skyfall mm. melody. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. Which I never really noticed. Well, it's the verse. I don't think he actually plays well, the chorus, doesn't he? It, oh, no, he does. Oh, he does. Okay. As well. yeah, so def- he definitely plays the verse. He does, but it's sort of yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of disguised a bit, but I mm. think it's it's definitely in there. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Look, I think you know, I was I was disappointed to see Arnold leave, but I think Newman does a really really excellent job with Skyfall in particular. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of really interesting ideas, you know, epitomized in this track. Actually, yeah. you know, really bold, clear writing. Yeah. And something I've always loved about Newman is his string writing. Mm. Uh, it's very idiomatic of him. And the music he wrote for, um, well, she's not actually, she's a love interest. She's the brief love interest. Brief, yeah. She's a love interest that dies. There's always a love interest that dies early on in the film. Well, there's a love interest that dies late in the film in this one, if you think of M as... Anyway. Yeah, true. Yeah. Anyway, this is, music for Sever- <laughs> this is the music for Severin, and it's, it's pretty central. And mm. just the way the chords kind of rise in their sort of major minorness is, is really beautiful. Mm. I think the most interesting thing about that cue is is that it really shows how the Bond sound actually has developed because that's John Barry, yes, but it's John Barry via David Arnold to Thomas Newman. Yeah. Because if that was, you know, you can hear the lush, romantic, beautiful string style that you get with John Barry's string writing. But if that was John Barry straight or imitating, you'd have that's tracing out of the in in the bass line in the cellos or something yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Um, but you know whereas David Arnold imitates that but doesn't really do so much of that in the bass yeah. and 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 there that's taken to I think a, a, a further degree mm. where actually for a lot of that beginning the bass is very static yeah and yeah. The, and it's the and it, it's not really I mean, it's hardly a theme it's more just a sort of it's mm. an evocative kind of mood. Mm. And look, mm. my only kind of uh, sad thing about this style of writing is that he kind of does almost exactly the same thing in the next film, yeah. in Inspector. He sort of doesn't take a different approach to the, the women. Mm. Um, well, especially maybe, maybe it's the women that die music because <laughs> ah. the, um, the, the part played by Monica Bellucci mm. has a really, you know, a sort of that passionate, sensual kind of quality mm. to it. Mm. Uh, but then again, maybe, maybe Barry's stuff all kind of had a similarity to it. So it's not necessarily sure. a negative. Sure. Uh, just something I really, I really kind of noticed. Mm. I love the interplay between the different strings, mostly violins one and two. Isn't it great? Pro- yeah. Probably violas as well. 
it's just it's a total weaving around. So sometimes they're they're working together, but then they'll the parts will meet up really close, and you'll get these really quite intense clashes yeah. mm. that he just lingers on for longer than you would get in another romantic theme, mm, yeah. and then they release out again, but not very far. They're never moving that far apart, and it's just these. It's little like they go from seconds to thirds. And yeah, yeah. To thirds. And they're, they're. I always, well, listening to it, I'm thinking of these three threads being violin one, two, and violas, and they're just intertwining and bouncing off each other and yeah. and we- weaving around. And so there's not so much a melody that you can point to as easily as Barry's because he would have played it twice and it would have been very straightforward and very mm. melodic. But it's this, it's this total mood. That I can't think of any other the, of the romantic mm. themes that lingers so much in sort of tension and release and, you know, constantly there. Mm. Um, so it's less romantic and more, I don't know, there's, there's tortured. Yeah, and, and there's a bit melancholic. Of, yeah, and yeah. to me, also a bit of like passion in there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. attraction. It's like the first sort of attracted to each other and mm. yeah. they're in the shower, they're sort of intertwining bodies. It's, mm. yeah, it's a lot of, mm. lot of uh, sensual, <laughs> uh, symbol, sensual symbolism. Yeah. Uh, great. Now, before, before we move on to the final film of the, of the part three, mm. um, I want to propose that, at least because I know we're not going to ask this question at the end, this is my favourite bad guy in Skyfall. Mm. Um, out of all the bad guys, out of all the villains, mm. this guy's the number one he's for pretty, me. He's pretty creepy. Yeah, 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 totally. I've never got it's creepy true. from any Bond villains. I mean, apart no. from Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> there's a there's a real kind of... Yeah. I think it's because, menace. you know, more than... I know a lot of franchises or a lot of action films or anything have, have tried this. That idea of understanding where the bad guy yeah. has come from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's often, it's like, yeah, I know what you're trying. You're trying mm. to humanize the bad guy, but it's often not very successful. This yeah. guy, I sympathize with far more than mm. most other villains. Mm. But at the same time, he's sort of crazy. Yeah. And he is very creepy. Mm. And there is, he's not the maniacal bad guy per se. Um, there is the you know the I guess the the sexual orientation thing going mm. on that sort of seems fluid. Mm. It's just a very mm. interesting, nuanced character that. But he, that's, he, he it's in, not just a bad guy. Mm. You know? He gets involved in the action. You know, he like mm. he mm. goes undercover. He dresses as a cop. There's a big chase sequence in the in the train. He's sort of he's he's a real kind of. Do you know what? The only other bad guy I thought was was his match was actually uh, Alec Trevelyan. I was going to say the same uh, thing. Sean Bean, mm. 006 in Goldeneye, because mm. it's sort of like. He's not just sitting up in his little lair, um, you know, compared to like Blofeld in the next film. He mm. seems a bit just... Mm. Yeah, and they're, they're equals. They're in, equals, in, yeah. In, 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 in Goldeneye and in, and in Skyfall, they're both yeah. former agents. Absolutely. As villains. And so, it's sort of, you know, Bond is confronting not only his equal, but, you know, kind of part of himself or a yeah, version of himself. A version of himself that's sort of gone, yeah. gone the wrong way. Yeah. And, and what I also loved about this, once again, it's, it's that riffing on the on classic Bond is that, you know, some of the classic villains all often have physical scars. Mm. And this guy's scar is hidden for the entire film, mostly mm. the entire film. And it does feel like just another agent. So when you talk, yeah, it's creepy and twisted and weird and he feels like he's potentially more powerful than Bond at any given moment or smarter or whatever it is. 
and you never really get that villain idea until he pulls out the um, the prosthetic mm. that he has in his face and his face collapses mm. into a monster. Mm. And I just find that so wonderful, that the idea that the shell on the outside, the thing that he's choosing to betray mm. to everyone, including Bond and himself and everyone, is much more of a more normal guy and a mm. and a but underneath is the monster. Mm. And that's both physical and I guess psychological as well, is that there's this deep villain under there hidden. Mm. And it's the same with the prosthetic, where whereas a lot of other villains it's just there to be seen. Mm. You know, right from the start. I don't know. I just think it, it's it's my favourite villain. So we're up to Spectre. Spectre. Mm. Let's do it. We're there. We're there. Um, Newman returns once again, mm-hmm. and um, so does the choir. This mm. is a, a great transition cue when they um, they go into Rome, called the Eternal City. Newman definitely does have his own sort of action style. Mm. It's sort of, it's a little anonymous at times. Mm. Um, I think it's better in Skyfall than it is in Spectre. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, there are there are some great bits, and I mean, there's that, there's that fantastic chase along the, the Tiber River yeah. in Rome, yeah, yeah, where and I remember noticing, especially in the film, this quite beautiful coral, huge coral step, and mm. sort of you know that comes out of the Bond harmony when the cars, you know, they go flying past St Peter's Basilica. It's interesting writing and it's a bring in the choir like that, which we see, you know, as we've shown in these podcasts occasionally throughout the Bond series, but very rarely, uh, certainly not really in action sequences. Yeah. Um, I, I just sort of feel, I mean, I'm, I don't really want to use the term generic, but yeah. there is, it's like there is just some generic Hollywood writing creeping into the score in this one. Yeah, I have to agree. You know, and I don't want to sort of, you know, finish up our, no. uh, you know, on a bit of a downer here, but, you know, don't don't you think that that uniqueness is starting to fade yeah. at this point? Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, Like that, that didn't scream Bond to me, really. No. You know, at no. the end of the day. No. It sort of sound, sounds like a, like a trailer for Bond. Yeah, like, like yeah, trailer yeah, yeah. music in the Bond mode. Yeah, yeah a little mm. bit, a little bit. Mm. I mean, look, I think I think a good place to end actually is with something that, in my opinion, does totally sound like Bond. And um, the song from this film was, I mean, a little polarizing um, for some people. I 
I didn't mind it at all. Um, I actually thought though what made it was was the orchestration. And many people assumed that Thomas Newman had done the orchestrations for Sam Smith's song, Writings on the Wall. But apparently the song was written in about half an hour in the studio. Mm, they just mm. got in there, jammed away and, and came up with basically a piano and vocal demo. And it was meant to be a demo, but the mics were live and they captured them all. Mm. Um, and actually the, the gentleman who had the task of writing the orchestral arrangement is a wonderful uh, composer ranger from England called Simon Hale. And uh, I thought his, his orchestrations were total bond, mm. just, just really, really great. Um, and they were so fantastic. They've actually got kind of like almost like a cue spot of their own on that passionate little uh, romantic mm. bit on the train where they mm. just, um, is it Madeline and, and Bond, mm. Mm. embrace and, and, and kiss and sort of go at it. Mm. Um, but the orchestration of, of Simon Hales there is fantastic and just screams, screams James Bond if ever I heard it. So we're at the end, mm. 50 plus years. Uh, I mean, how many is it? 55, 56 years? Yeah, since at this point. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's a, an awful. I can't believe we got through that. Yeah. Three, I mean, three episodes. Yep. I mean, we did three episodes on A New Hope. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> from, from one year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I thought that was a, a lot of fun. But mm. I do want to end on a. I guess a question mm. or a couple of questions for you guys and, and obviously for our listeners at home in inverted commas. Um, I'd love to hear what your, your favourite is. So I've got two questions. Uh, what is your favourite score? Mm. It could be tied up in your favourite Bond film. And then what your favourite song is. Because we sort of avoided the songs in general. Mm. Um, but I want to I hear what your favourite song is. Um, who wants to mm. kick off? Well, I think probably for me... I get the most mileage out of the Casino Royale soundtrack. It's the one that I return to most often. Yes. Um, it's got quite a lot of variation. It's very, very sort of, you know, quintessentially Bond in its sound. Um, I, if, you know, if I had to pick one to listen to forever, that wouldn't be a bad one, I yep. think. Great, yep. As far as song goes, I mean, look, I, I think Skyfall is a great distillation of a lot of the elements that makes a great Bond song. Yeah, and yeah. I could listen to that for a very long time. But I have to say, I've got to go with um, Surrender, the, the, mm. the sort of the non-main song, the end credits song, Katie Lang from Tomorrow Never Dies. I just think it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. That's an interesting... See, mm. I love this. I love, like mm. I, I think I said in part two, that, that Bond just has such a different mm. feel for so many different people because I wouldn't have expected Surrender from you, Dan. Well, I mean, look, you know, you could easily go Live and Let Die or Goldfinger or any of the classics mm. or You Only Live Twice. I mean, Live and Let Die, You Only Live Twice and The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, I mean, nobody does it better. They're the three songs that stand alone from the Bond 
films mm. as as great songs in their own right. Yep. Uh, but well, I don't know, as a Bond song, Surrender. Yeah, interesting. What do you reckon, Nick? Look, favorite score. Um, oh God, I think I'm going to say On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yep. Uh, I yeah, have okay. a real, real big soft spot for that. Closely followed by Living Daylights. Mm. Uh, I think because that's the first Bond film I saw, actually. Mm. And um, for years, I loved that score and I loved that film. I think as far as film, I think I'm going to say Casino Royale. Mm. I, I just, yeah, that's a film I could, I could watch mm. over. Over, over well, and over. Hold on, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, Andrew didn't ask me that question, so I. Okay, yeah. I so yeah, favorite yeah. score on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Mm. Yep. Favorite film. Um, yeah. For me, for me. Oh, no, but I want to say an old one as well. <laughs> oh, my favorite of the olds is definitely from Russia with Love. But I, I mean, Casino Royale is great, but it ends kind of weirdly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Skyfall. Skyfall is outstanding amongst all Bonds mm. in that it has a good ending. Yes. Pretty much every other Bond kind of doesn't really end that well, I've got to say. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, Andrew, what about you? Well, no, you haven't given us your favourite song. Mm. Oh, my favourite song. Song. Or I would say, I think probably Goldfinger. It's yeah. just, I know it's so iconic oh, and all, but it's... Yeah. No, you, you can't go wrong with Goldfinger. <laughs> for, for nostalgia reasons, I'm going to say Goldfinger. It's, yeah. just, it's just got everything. I mean, if you were to say what is the quintessential Bond song, I mean, mm. that is the Bond yeah. song. You sure. know, yeah. If you were going to yep. parody Bond yep. songs, it's Goldfinger. Yep. Yep. I mean, I even that Shirley Bassey sound. Yeah. I mean, you can almost do not quite any Bond song, but certainly Bond songs sung by women. Mm. And you put on mm. the Shirley Bassey tone mm. and it just makes sense every time. Like it's, you know, mm. there's almost, it's just Bond, mm. you know. So, I, yes, it's hard to go wrong with that one, I think. Mm. Um, okay, my thoughts on this. I find it hard to point to best score and separate it from a best picture. Mm. I, I think Casino Royale. Mm. In terms of, I think I'm, I'm on board with you, Dan, on terms of the, the best score, the score I like the most. Mm. But that's partly because I just like the movie yeah. so much. Yeah. Um, but I have to agree that even though I think Casino Royale is just so great and it's just really, it's just tight, like mm. without being fast and, you know, mm. and so on. I just think it's just a really good film, um, not just a good Bond film. Mm. Uh, but like you said, the ending is weak. If I say in terms of a really great Bond film, then I sort of fall to Skyfall mm. because it has all the Bond elements in it mm -hmm. and it has all the toys you want. It's got great mm. little cameos. It's mm. got, I don't know. It's just, and like I said, that, yeah. that villain I just love. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, there's something about Casino Royale. I always think mm. of that as just the one that really told the world, myself included, mm. that Bond can be really great again. Mm. Mm. And, yeah, that's sort of where I fall on that. Mm. Um, in terms of song, mm. I, I, I'm going to say this one because it made Dan angry when I told him <laughs> earlier. <laughs> oh, you're such a villain. <laughs> um, I'm going to say writing's on the wall. What? Wow. What? Okay, let me let me say why. Well, it's not even the Andrew. best song written for that film. <laughs> <laughs> the Radiohead song is great. Ah. Since you've been singing so much, yep. can you give us your highest Sam Smith <laughs> impression? <laughs> uh, 
no, th- it sounds reason- like Michael Jackson's Earth song. Though. <laughs> oh, that's much better. I like Earth song. Uh, anyway, um, okay. This is this is why I think this song is just really interesting. I I am trolling Dan a little bit yeah. on this. Um, it, it was actually many weeks ago uh, when we were planning this episode that I said. Do you know what I, I quite like is is the Sam Smith mm. song and Dan instantly started going red. Yeah. And I'm like, well now now it's definitely my favorite. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, red yeah. flag to a bull. <laughs> <laughs> red face to a bull. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm doubling down on this and Great. I thought I'd set myself the challenge of trying to convince you mm-hmm. about how cool a song this is. Mm-hmm. So when you think Bond songs, you think you know, a lot of them are sort of quite bombastic, at least the best ones anyway. Mm. Um, certainly Skyfall, certainly, uh, well, Goldfinger. You know, they're big mm. songs. And when it gets to the chorus, they're big, you know. It's just huge and so on. Mm. What I love about this is they turn it on its head. The verses are big in this and the chorus is almost whispered. Mm. And I think that... The, I mean, I, I find Sam Smith to be a really interesting artist mm. because one, think about a classic, you know, a modern day pop artist, normally very good looking. Sam Smith is a strange looking guy. Mm. Uh, they're normally great dancers or, you know, great entertainers. I don't think he's that at all. Mm. Um, he's called Sam Smith. Could you get a more generic name than Sam Smith? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, nothing about him should work and mm. therefore it's his voice and what he's doing with pop music mm. in terms of his interpretations that actually is the sole reason why he is popular. Like they, you can't point to really any other element. Mm. Um, and so I think he's a really interesting choice. Mm. And I just sort of – I love the fact that it has that little whispering moment and um, – Let's sort of, maybe I'll try and convince you guys of just how nice this is. So, I mean, what I what I love about this is that when it gets to, you know, if I risk it all, could you break my fall? Mm. It sounds like it's leading to the world's biggest chorus mm. where it's just explosions and trumpets and everything mm. else. And then they drop the entire orchestration or, or backing out of it. And then he's way up in his range. Mm. And then the words are, how do I live? How do I breathe? Uh, when you're not here, I'm suffocating. It really feels like everything has been choked. Like there's no air anymore in any of it. There's the whole accompaniment's been taken out. He's there is a strain to his voice up there, and it's at the moment with any other Bond song where it would just explode into mm. a big chorus, mm. and they do the opposite. And he then, you know, I guess it sort of dissolves out from that sort of suffocating sort of moment. 
And then as soon as he finishes the chorus, it then explodes again into... And it's for me, it always feels like it's a, um, a wailing. Mm. Like there is a total sadness in the orchestra that just comes back in with sort of this dramatic you know, um, uh, crying out of pain. Mm. And then it's back into this delicateness. I just think it's such an interesting Bond song. Mm. I know why people don't find it to be, you know, the greatest or maybe mm. to have a big problem with it. Mm. Um, I know why Dan doesn't dig it. <laughs> but I, I think that there is actually a lot going on in here that under the, under the hood mm. that isn't, doesn't present itself immediately. Yeah. Look, Your thoughts, Dan? Uh, look, you, you've done an excellent defence of it, and I can see where you're going. And I will give you that it's the only Bond theme that I could have a nice relaxing nap to. <laughs> Using um, to sleep too, yeah, yeah. And uh, with all respect, you and the Academy are wrong. So, <laughs> I've got the Academy on my yeah. side, Nick. Are you siding with the Academy or Daniel? Nick, Nick's not saying anything. <laughs> He's, he's we weren't going to talk about the songs <laughs> on this podcast. Right, right. Look, no, I mean, the orchestration is really nice. I agree right. with you there. I, I really do like the way that that plays out in the film. I mean, in the, in the, in the piece of music. Um, but I'm not, I'm not a massive fan of the melody. Well, Dan, I'm, um, I'm going to edit that out, and I'm glad we agree. Good. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I convinced you. Yes. Anyway, guys, that brings us to the end of part three of our Bond retrospective. Yeah. Is that, would, you, would you call it retrospective? I don't even know what that word means anymore. Sure. Yeah. yeah, let's look. Yeah, we're not looking forward, so it's a retrospective. <laughs> yeah. It's not a prospective. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Um, <laughs> so, uh, if, you, if you enjoyed uh, these episodes, we'd love to hear from you. You know, uh, write us a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, etc., or whatever, you know, device... Uh, system that you you check out our podcast with. Um, tell your friends, tell your um, you know uh, your enemies, um, <laughs> and uh, you know we'd we'd love to sort of get the word out that that we're we're doing this, especially this Bond thing. I think there are so many fans that perhaps. Uh, Bond is just totally their thing. I find that mm. Bond is more mainstream than I ever really think yeah. about yeah, at the definitely. end of the day. And maybe this is the episode to get your, your mm. friends into uh, the film music that you love and with a franchise that sort of, you know, so many people love. Mm. Uh, but like I said, um, right, you know, get in touch with us on the socials, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the usual places, all at Art of the Score. Love to hear from you. Get on the email. We, I guarantee we read everything. Uh, mm. Nick is normally the one who checks the email, but then every time we get something, he forwards it through to Dan and I, and we, we mm. always get to read it, which is really exciting. Uh, until next time, I'm going to say this right here because then it locks us in, Dan. All right. Our next episode, episode 21, Ready to Drink. All right is, even though I think Nick's been doing it for the past three episodes, is um, we're actually going to do a video game. Excellent. What? It's about time. What? It only took us 21 episodes. Subtitle. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It only took us 21. Mm. Now, I... I'd love people to guess who, where they think we're going. I think for me, this is uh, this is one of the greatest um, video game scores written. Yep. It's a, it's a, that's a bold claim. Oh uh, no, it's supportable. I'm with yeah, you. it's it's right up there. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm really excited by it. And we're finally, like you said, fulfilling that promise mm. that we made 20 episodes ago. So uh, yeah, try and guess, you know, um, and and see if you're right. But until that moment. 
Uh, I'm Andrew Pogson. That's Dan Golding. The pleasure, Mr. Pogson, has been all mine. Oh, yeah. And he's Nicholas Buck. Thank you, guys. It was an absolute pleasure. And this was Art of the Score.
Thank you.